Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Dave King engineering today's program. Coming up in our second hour, Judge Amur Thapur. He is the uh, author of The People's Justice. He'll be joining us for that. And then we'll take a look at what happened in Portland on Sunday night, as well as some uh, surveys that tell us what Americans care most about. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Republicans are mounting their own effort at an expanded child tax credit that includes applying the credit to children in the womb. Representative Ashley Hinson, a Republican out of Iowa, is leading a package of bills in the House called the Providing for Life Act. It's an ambitious attempt at overhauling the federal government's family care system. Henson says her legislation charts the policy course for a culture of life in America by expanding the child tax credit to include the unborn, the preborn, if you will, and providing additional support to working families, empowering women to care for their babies, regardless of socioeconomic status or zip code and improving access to community resources. We can make a meaningful difference for those in need. Well, the marquee item would see the refundable child tax credit expand to a $3,500 cap for children five and under, $4,500 for ages 6 to 12, or rather 6 to 17, and parents would have to be employed to get the credit under the GOP bill. It would also retroactively expand the tax credit to unborn children. When a dependent is born, parents would become eligible to claim the tax credit in the prior year during the pregnancy, in addition to gaining access to the regular child tax credit in the current year. Well, Twitter officially has a new look. Early Monday morning, Twitter owner Elon Musk, he formally changed the iconic Bluebird logo on the social media platform to a new black and white X, which he revealed the day before. The logo was also displayed on Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco early Monday morning. Twitter officials uh, account on the platform also has the name X, the everything app. Over the weekend, Musk confirmed he wanted to move away from the little blue aesthetic in pursuit of a black and white themed platform. The logo change comes as Musk has brought many changes to the platform, including a push for Twitter's monthly subscription service, lengthier tweets and better video quality, dropping verification for most non-paying customers and addition of job postings to businesses and others. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, 73, was released from the hospital this morning following an emergency heart procedure as tens of thousands of demonstrators held rival rallies ahead of a key vote on the government's judicial overhaul plan. Netanyahu's sudden hospitalization for the implant of a pacemaker came ahead of Monday's vote in Parliament that has uh, approved the first major piece of that legislation in the contentious plan. The overall calls for sweeping changes to the powers of the judiciary, including limiting the Supreme Court's ability to challenge parliamentary decisions and changing the way in which judges are selected. The Supreme Court decision last month that ruled against affirmative action in higher education could dismantle diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, programs in corporate America, according to experts. On Thursday, the Supreme Court said in a 6-3 decision that colleges and universities could not include race considerations in their admissions process, effectively outlawing what's known as affirmative action and upending previous legal precedent that allowed it. The decision has sparked debate on if and how it could influence other sectors of public life, including the hiring and promotion practices of companies and corporations. 
Some experts say the decision could mean that corporations could be held liable for wokeism in DEI programs and policies. The campaign for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis released a six-minute video showing liberal media personalities repeatedly labeling the Republican presidential candidate as more dangerous than former President Donald Trump. The DeSantis war room on Sunday posted the video, six minutes of the left admitting they fear DeSantis more than Trump, which features commentary from an array of left-wing commentators, including Van Jones, David Pakman, and others. The commentators in the clip make their point by urging DeSantis, saying that he's more savvy, disciplined, and competent than Trump, and would be more capable of executing the Republican agenda. The Trump agenda would be far more likely to be carried on by the pe- by people less cartoonish, uh, cartoonishly problematic, and Ron DeSantis is a perfect example of such an individual, Pacman argues in the video. Well, the Trump campaign issued a statement on Sunday saying the liberal talking points are irrelevant. Hmm. Well, amid President Biden's pledge to Israeli President Isaac Herzog on a rather Isaac Herzog on Tuesday that America's commitment to the security of the Jewish state is ironclad. A new think tank report reveals the U.S. has declined to designate a number of Iranian backed entities as terrorist organizations. Just weeks ago, Israel deployed nearly 2000 troops to root out Palestinian terrorists who are backed by the Islamic Republic of Iran, according to Brigadier General Amir Avivi, a former deputy commander of the Israel Defense Forces Gaza Division. Avivi told Fox News Digital for the last year and a half, Iran stated clearly that its main strategy is to make the Samaria region another Gaza. Samaria is the biblical Hebrew name for a part of the West Bank. The entire West Bank is also known in Israel by its biblical name, Judea and Samaria. Avivi, who is the CEO of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, said the Iranians are pouring money and smuggling weapons into the region. They're supporting Hamas and the PIJ, which is the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and other factions within the Palestinian Authority. FDD's Long War Journal, which is run by the military expert Bill Raggio, has monitored the buildup of Iranian-backed terrorist organizations on key fronts, Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon, and Syria. Israel has worked to limit the growth of these terrorist organizations, but they remain a significant threat on multiple fronts, according to the report. Well, the California State Superintendent Tony Thurmond was kicked out of a school board meeting on Friday and escorted by police while protesting a policy to inform parents about child's desire to change genders. The Chino Valley Unified School District policy, which ultimately passed, stipulated that parents must be informed if their child expresses a desire to be identified or treated as a gender different from their biological sex, intends to use the bathroom and athletic facilities of the opposite sex, seeks a pronoun or name change, or if there are mental health concerns with the child. Thurman objected to the policy, warning it may fall outside of the law that respect privacy and safety for our students, but may put our students at risk because they may not have homes where they can be seen. I'm not sure quite what he meant by that, but you can imagine. Well, school board president Sonia Shaw responded to Thurman, accusing him of supporting an agenda that would pervert children. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the headlines of the day in the second hour of the program, The People's Justice, and a reminder of what happened this weekend as uh, believers on Sunday gathered at the Portland waterfront. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, despite the president's economic plan, 58 percent of Americans still disapprove of the economy. President Joe Biden's economic approval numbers have risen modestly in the wake of efforts by the White House to promote what it calls Bidenomics and some improvement in inflation. But a substantial majority of respondents to the survey still disapprove of his handling of the economy. The survey also found that Republicans hold double digit leads like uh, on which party Americans believe is best to handle critical economic issues like inflation and jobs, and that higher interest rates are beginning to hit Americans in their wallets. It now stands at 37% approving and 58% disapproving. Now, this is in the absence of a specific individual uh, who has a political um, track record, but nonetheless, that's the general result of the survey. CNN anchor Dana Bash praised the Biden economy after recent inflation numbers and asked Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi, why President Joe Biden's poll numbers don't reflect that. Well, nearly six in 10 Americans still disapprove of the handle, his handling of the economy. Why is that? And what does it uh, he have to do with uh, to turn it around? Nancy Pelosi, I ask myself that all the time, too. A 39 percent plurality of plurality, I can say the word of Americans think the situation at the United States Mexico border is a crisis. 33 percent, a major problem, 22 percent, a major problem and 5 percent, not a problem, which is essentially unchanged from the previous reading in 2019. Taken together, majorities in each party group say the border is uh, situation is either a crisis or a major problem. Texas Governor Greg Abbott's mission to stop the influx of illegal migrants, drugs and weapons into the United States under Operation Lone Star has resulted in the seizure of over 422 million lethal fentanyl doses and the apprehension of over 394,200 migrants in the country illegally, his office said. Additionally, Texas has bussed more than 27,260 to Democrat-led sanctuary cities across the U.S., with most of the migrants going to Washington, D.C. and New York City. We learned last week that the governor said there's no more room in that inn. The Biden administration is asking Texas to remove barriers on the Rio Grande River that law enforcement officials had put in place to stop illegal crossings. The Department of Justice is threatening to sue Texas over humanitarian concerns if it does not remove the barriers, which were first put in place earlier this month. The floating barriers pose a risk to navigation, as well as public safety in the Rio Grande River, and it presents humanitarian concerns, the Department of Justice said, claiming that it was unlawful for Texas to install the barriers. Governor Greg Abbott says Texas has the sovereign authority to defend our border under the U.S. Constitution and the Texas Constitution. We have sent the Biden administration numerous letters uh, letters detailing our authority, including the one I hand-delivered to President Biden earlier this year. National Review points out the Bowie Barrier is roughly a thousand feet in length, anchored in the riverbed and is situated near the border town of Eagle Pass, Texas, a major crossing point for migrants. Nancy Pelosi accused Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of playing politics with the idea of expunging former President Donald Trump's two impeachments. Pelosi deems the move irresponsible and McCarthy has not scheduled a floor vote on the matter, suggesting it should go through the committee process like any other issue. Uh, the recount reports that, as I've said before, Donald Trump is the puppeteer. And what does he do all the time but shine the light on the strings? These people are uh, look pathetic. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi on the reporting uh, that Speaker Kevin McCarthy may look to expunge Trump's two impeachments. And the politicking 
is nothing new in Washington. It turns out all of the millions of dollars worth of arms weapons the Biden administration is sending to Ukraine to fight its ongoing war with Russia are ending up in the hands of criminal gangs. The U.S. Defense Department's Inspector General report found a lack of accountability in maintaining the equipment it sends to Ukraine. A group posing as humanitarian aid workers worked to obtain a horde of U.S.-provided bulletproof vests. The Department of Defense, OIG, just released a report that shows serious problems in maintaining accountability and equipment provided to Ukraine. This includes criminal gangs getting their hands on a grenade launcher, machine guns, rifles, thousands of ammo, etc., etc. In late uh, June of 2022, the SPU disrupted a group of Ukrainian criminals posing as members of a humanitarian aid organization who distributed bulletproof vests. The group illicitly imported the vests and sold them rather than distribute them to the Ukrainian forces. A member of the group was found with a cache of vests worth $17,000. Squad member Representative Cori Bush campaign shelled out tens of thousands of dollars to her husband, Courtney Merritt, for private security during the first half of 2023. And despite stressing the need to defund the police, you know, for the rest of us, Bush, a member of the Black Lives Matter, pocketed $17,500 for security services and wage expenses between April and June. These payments follow the $12,500 that went to Merritt's during the first quarter of the private security service, totaling $30,000 for the year. The far-left progressive has defended her need for tight security, claiming she requires uh, much uh, the need to be protected because of past attempts on her life and too much work to do. Well, since last year, reports show that Bush's campaign has sent the Democrat uh, a husband bi-monthly $2,500 checks, totaling $60,000, while paying out hundreds of thousands to the protection firm Peace Security. Bush teared up uh, as uh, a member of the Black Lives Matters um, Global Network Foundation Board of Directors called her a brilliant and strategic leader for reintroducing the People's Response Act, a measure that would fund unarmed social workers to respond to mental health emergencies instead of police. Bauer said the bill was a critical step in upending a law enforcement model that harms our community and abolishes the prison complex designed to tear down black families. Bush said her bill would prevent thousands of deaths and abuses of black people at the hands of police. Generally, when police are defunded, it's the black community that suffers the most. An elderly Lowe's employee has been fired for attempting to thwart shoplifters. Yeah, you heard that right. A Georgia Lowe's employee attempted to stop shoplifters, making off with $2,100 in merchandise, leaving her unemployed and with a black eye. Donna Hansborough, she's 68, saw three people loading up a shopping cart at a store uh, in her community, uh, police said. The veteran employee then grabbed onto the cart, allegedly being pushed uh, by one of the perpetrators who slugged the older woman in the face three times. Hansborough was then canned from her job of 13 years for violating company policy by interfering with the crooks. The former store employee said she became overwhelmed by instinct, but never thought her employer would let her go. But let her go. He did. It is the latest incident in a string of cases across the U.S. where employees have lost their jobs for intervening in shoplifting incidents. Country music star singer Jason Aldean 
is uh, pushing back hard against the woke uh, anti-American agenda of the left, defending his uh, latest hit, Try That in a Small Town, after over a week of criticism for his pro-America, anti-riot, pro-gun song, as he describes it. Aldine was uh, greeted with overwhelming praise while performing in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's been a long week, and I've seen a lot of stuff, Aldine said between songs. I've seen a lot of stuff suggesting I'm this, suggesting I'm that. As the large audience cheered loudly, Aldine said, what I am, uh, uh, what I am a proud American, adding that he loves his country and will do anything to protect it. Country uh, movie television's uh, decision to pull Jason Aldine's video, try that in a small town from its uh, channel over claims of it being pro lynching has thus far resulted in fans propelling the song to number one on iTunes. Uh, top song in music videos, but uh, is a Bud Light-like backlash coming to CMT? Well, according to financial consultant uh, Ted Jenkins, CMT may soon be facing a significant financial hit. He warns, I think people are just saying enough is enough. Don't force an agenda down my throat, especially when it comes to the products I buy or the TV that I watch or the entertainers I enjoy. As of June, CMT ranked as the 43rd most watched basic cable channel, pulling in an average of 116,000 daily viewers, just a 10% drop in that viewership average could result in significant negative financial implications, producing another example of get woke, get uh, get broke. Smithsonian's uh, Latino Museum lost funding for peddling victimhood, giving an accurate presentation of history matters, according to a number of House Republicans, The Smithsonian's latest museum currently in development, the National Museum of the American Latino, utterly fails to meet that expected standard. In fact, it was hurtful, said Arizona Republican Representative Juan Siscomani following his tour. The only thing worse than your story not being told is your story being wrongly told. And that's exactly what is happening here, he explained. The Hispanic community deserves better. Not only was the quality of the exhibit lacking, but the main message was forced on um, focused rather on presenting Hispanics as a victim class. When complaints were raised, Smithsonian officials ignored them. Therefore, Republicans will take their power of the purse and pull funding. We'll fix it, said Representative Mario Diaz-Balart. Uh, but the way to do that is to make sure the Smithsonian understands that we will not accept the uh, patronizing quasi-racist attitude toward Latinos in the United States of America. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, the People's Justice. And we'll uh, re- look back at uh, what occurred on the Portland waterfront just last night. So stay with us. Vice President uh, Harris's Florida curriculum Objection has gained a great deal of attention. Speaking of advancing historical inaccuracy, she was recently called out by um, none other than CNN over her recent completely vacuous claim that Florida's new curriculum standard for teaching black history includes the claim that enslaved people benefited from slavery. The trouble is, as commentator Scott Jennings observed, this is a completely made up deal. I look at the uh, standards. I even looked at an analysis of the standards in every instance where the word slavery or slave is used. Jennings further noted everybody involved in this says this is completely a fabricated issue. And yet look how quickly Kamala Harris jumped on it. He concludes. So the fact that this is her best moment, a fabricated matter is pretty ridiculous. Grifters gone uh, going to grift. He went on to say. 
First, the Biden administration came for gas stoves. Now it's going after gas water heaters. On Friday, the Department of Energy released newly proposed efficiency standards regulations for gas powered water heaters. The agency claims that the new standards would save consumers roughly $11 billion annually, as well as reduce greenhouse emissions by 500 million tons over a 30-year period. In actuality, what the new rule would do is eliminate more affordable gas-powered water heating units, forcing customers into purchasing more expensive uh, units uh, or going electric. It's just another example of the government putting its thumb on the scale. These products already exist in the free market, contended Representative Thomas Massey. Consumers should decide whether upfront uh, cost of a heat pump water heater is worth the possible long term savings. In many cases, the monthly savings never make up for the upfront cost of the equipment. The administration has apparently decided to play coy with the Senate regarding the uh, current Open seats for Labor Department Secretary following Marty Walsh's resignation from the post this past March. Deputy Secretary Julie Sue has been filling the lead role as acting secretary. Apparently, she will do so on into the future as Joe Biden has refused to officially nominate Sue for the post since her um, hard left policy record has made a Senate confirmation nigh impossible. With all Republicans and likely at least three Democrats objecting to her, the administration knows she's a no-go. Biden handlers can drag out the ordeal until October 7th, the deadline established by the Vacancies Act requiring a nomination. The administration is uh, attempting to claim that since Sue is currently the acting secretary, the deadline doesn't apply. Given the standoff, the courts will most likely have to weigh in. The problem of thieving flash mobs that suddenly descend on unsuspecting stores seemingly out of the blue, pillaging everything from big box stores to small businesses, is anything but spontaneous, we're learning. In fact, there's evidence that this is part of a growing business model for Mexican cartels. According to DHS Special Agent Eric DeLon, these mass thefts are a $70 billion a year enterprise, organized retail crime. The lawn explains, in contrast to shoplifters, organized theft groups, they engage in large-scale thefts, which rely on teams of boosters who steal goods from major retail stores, cleaners who disguise the origin of the stolen merchandise, fencers who resell products through brick-and-mortar fronts and major e-commerce websites, and professional money launderers who funnel illicit profits to criminals orchestrating the schemes. Hunter Biden put then-Vice President Dad Joe on the phone with business associates at least two dozen times. An ex-partner, Devin Archer, is prepared to testify. And House Republican leaders alleged in a Thursday letter that the White House uh, has uh, narrowed its denials about President Joe Biden's involvement in Hunter Biden's foreign business deals. White House spokesman Ian Sam said on the 23rd of, of June and the 29th that the president was not in business with his son. That statement is a clear shift from the White House's previous messaging, according to the letter by Republican representatives Elise Stefanik and Jim Jordan, James Comer and Jason Smith. Joe Biden has repeatedly made broader denials, saying in 2019 that I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. White House officials said the president stood by that claim, but uh, growing evidence of Biden's proximity to his son's business And his dealings has made his blanket denial harder to sustain. Professors are urging President Biden to defy mistaken rulings by the MAGA Supreme Court justices. And DEI officers are questioning their career paths as demand falls. 
Criminal gangs are taking U.S. shipments of weapons meant for Ukraine. And President Biden has a border terrorism problem as encounters with flagged aliens have exploded ninefold. President Biden overruled the Pentagon, nominating the first woman to head the U.S. Navy. And legal lotto, a Florida family has been awarded $800,000 after a McDonald's Chicken McNugget burned a four-year-old girl. I plan on eating Chicken McNuggets for the foreseeable future and hope that I can sustain some sort of injury. Elon Musk has rebranded Twitter, teasing new financial features as well. Well, on this day in history, the 24th of July, 1858, Republican senatorial candidate Abraham Lincoln formally challenges Democrat Stephen A. Douglas to a series of political debates. The result would be seven face-to-face encounters. 1866, Tennessee becomes the first state to be readmitted to the Union after the Civil War. On this date in history, 1959, during a visit to Moscow, Vice President Richard Nixon engages in his famous kitchen debate with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, a name I haven't heard in quite a while. 1969, the Apollo 11 astronauts, two of whom had been the first men to set foot on the moon, splashed down safely in the Pacific. 1974, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously rules that President Richard Nixon has to turn over subpoenaed White House tape recordings to the Watergate special prosecutor. 1974, an Apollo spacecraft splashes down in the Pacific, completing a mission that includes the first ever docking with a Soyuz capsule from the Soviet Union. 1998, a gunman bursts into the U.S. Capitol, killing two police officers before being shot and captured. The shooter, Russell Eugene Weston Jr., is being held in a federal mental facility. On this day in history, 2002, nine coal miners become trapped in a flooded tunnel of the Q Creek Mine in western Pennsylvania, the ordeal would end happily 77 hours later with the rescue of all nine. 2005, Lance Armstrong wins his seventh consecutive Tour de, Fr- Tour de France. <laughs> Say that right. Uh, the, those uh, wins would be stripped away after Armstrong's 2013 confession to using steroids and other banned performance-enhancing drugs and methods. 2009, trying to tamp down a national uproar over race, President Barack Obama acknowledges using unfortunate words and declaring that Cambridge, Massachusetts police had acted stupidly, in quotes, in arresting black scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr., adding he'd invited Gates and Sergeant James Crowley, the arresting officer, for a beer here at the White House. This was dubbed the Beer Summit. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, although this wasn't the only thing that happened on this day in history, President Trump ignites controversy again by railing against his enemies and promoting his political agenda in a speech to the National Boy Scout gathering in West Virginia. Speaking of Donald Trump, his favorability among Republican and Republican leaning voters has fallen from 75 percent in July of last year to 66 percent in July of this year. That's according to a new Pew poll. Conversely, while only 24 percent of Republican voters survey thought of Trump unfavorably in July of 22, that is now up 32 percent in the latest poll. Among the broader voting public, the former president's unfavorability has remained largely stable, whereas 60 percent of Americans did not hold a strong opinion of him in July of 22. Today, that's only 63 percent following his legal woes. Trump's favorability ratings place him in a similar league with President Joe Biden, who went from 43 percent to 39 percent during the same period. If 
Vice President Kamala Harris experienced a similar decline in support. The findings support similar public opinion research conducted in recent months. And while the backing of the former president slipped from 53 percent in May to 47 percent in June, Trump still led the field of Republican hopefuls by a wide margin, a recent CNN poll found. However, over half of Republicans polled insisted that Trump's conduct did not impact their perception of him. Instead, many view his effectiveness as a president superseding such concerns. Well, we're in that season. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder in the second hour, The People's Justice with Judge Amor Thopper. I'll get that name worked out before he joins us. And uh, we'll talk about uh, the worship event at the Portland Waterfront just last night. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on our second hour, a conversation on the book, The People's Justice. And we'll uh, look back at yesterday's event on the Portland waterfront. Hundred plus churches gathering together for worship. Well, the IRS announced on Monday that it will end most unannounced home visits in a move that reserves a decade or rather reverses a decades long practice. We are taking a fresh look at how the IRS operates to better serve taxpayers and the nation and making this change is a common sense step. That's a quote from the IRS commissioner, uh, Daniel Werfel, in an official statement, changing this longstanding procedure will increase confidence in our tax administration work and improve overall safety for taxpayers and IRS employees. Well, the agency noted that such visits would continue in only unique cases and that uh, agents are generally dispatched in situations usually involving over $100,000 in outstanding tax bills. Well, the agency's home visit policy came under scrutiny after independent journalist Matt Tybee revealed that he received an unannounced visit from IRS agents on the same day he testified before the House Judiciary Committee about his Twitter file series, which implicated several government agencies in colluding with social media companies to censor disfavored speech. Consequently, Representative Jim Jordan, the committee chairman, sent a letter to the IRS and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to demand an explanation. If the resulting hubbub had any part in today's news, I'm glad and grateful to Chairman Jordan and his staff, Tybee told National Review. Uh, Tybee added that following his experience with the IRS, several people came forward and shared far worse tales. My impression is there may be a broader pattern of using the IRS to investigate a range of politically irritating people, one that probably still needs looking into, Tybee said. But this is a good first step. Well, the move was seen as part of the IRS's latest attempt to reposition itself following an $80 billion cash infusion the agency received as part of the White House's package of the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRS is going to hire more data scientists than ever uh, before for enforcement purposes, uh, the Deputy Treasury Secretary told reporters. The budget windfall was aimed at helping the agency's auditing capabilities and upgrading its outdated technology to transform the IRS into a world-class customer service provider, as well as to enhance tax um, enforcement. Republicans, however, opposed to the funding increase, have pointed out that the IRS focuses the vast majority of its auditing efforts on poor and middle class in our rather middle income Americans. And it predicted the agency will only become more intrusive as it grows. Richard Bilkstow, a former principal with the Toronto District School Board, 
died by suicide last week in a tragic act that came after he was subjected to racist bullying by diversity, equity and inclusion consultants hired by the school district. The former educator's untimely passing was first announced by his attorney, Lisa Bildy, on Thursday. With sorrow, it is announced that Richard uh, Bilstow passed away suddenly last Thursday at his home in Toronto. He was 60 years of age. He leaves behind his distraught mother, brother, nephews, niece, and many dear friends and family uh, whose lives he touched over the years. Well, sadly, Richard experienced an affront to his stellar reputation in the spring of 2021, causing him severe mental distress, the attorney added. Bildy's letter references an incident that occurred during April of last year, DEI training seminar mandated by the school district, the largest and most influential school district in Canada, led by anti-oppression consultants from the KOJO Institute. Well, during the session, Bill Stowe, a gay man and former Liberal Party organizer, challenged arguments made by uh, one of the presenters, the group's founder, that Canada was a bastion of white supremacy and colonialism. At least they, the U.S., had a fighting posture against the monarchy. Here we celebrate the monarchy, the very heart and soul and origins of colonial structure, the presenter um, uh, said, according to Bill Stowe's account. Well, he had taught in Buffalo, New York for a time and understood Canada's vastly different history with slavery, challenging the presenter's argument, which invited a scathing retort. We are here to talk about anti-black racism, but you and your whiteness think that you can tell me what's really going on for black people. The equity consultant shot back. Well, you can imagine how it went from there. Another facilitator jumped in to tag team uh, Bill Stowe. If you want to be an apologist for the U.S. or Canada, this is really not the forum for that. Uh, Later, um, the other added that your job in this work as white people is to believe and reflect it on the episode, calling it a profound and appropriate teachable moment. Well, after the meeting, a prominent uh, superintendent uh, commented uh, that KOJO Institute on Twitter for overcoming the resistance they encountered with Bill Stowe. And for modeling the discomfort administrators may need to experience in order to disrupt ABR anti-black racism. The thinly failed reference to Bilkstow was only removed after his legal team threatened a lawsuit. Well, the story goes on from there. The intimidation continued and he ultimately sued and ended his own life in the midst of it all. These programs are not without cost. Elon Musk stripped Twitter of its traditional Bluebird logo and rebranded the app with a minimalist X design late Sunday while sending signals that the company will be unveiling new financial features as well. On Sunday afternoon, the chief executive, Elon Musk, tweeted X.com now points to Twitter.com. Interim X logo goes live uh, later today. Well, the new logo was also projected on the social media platform headquarters in San Francisco, California on Sunday night. The development prompted um, Walter Isaacson, a prominent American biographer who's currently writing a biography of Musk's life, to expand on the tech entrepreneur's thinking. When his cousin Peter Rive, or Reeve, uh, visited in early 99, he found Musk poring over books about the banking system. I'm trying to think about what to start next, he explained. His experience at the, the bank had convinced him that the industry was ripe for disruption. So in March of 99, he founded uh, HTTP double slash X dot com. Isaacson wrote on Twitter, sharing an excerpt from the forthcoming book. His concept for the uh, the X was grand. 
It would be a one-step everything store for all financial needs, banking, digital uh, purchases, checking, credit cards, investment, and loans. Transactions would be handled instantly with no waiting for payments to clear. His insight was that money is simply an an entry into a database, and he wanted to devise a way that all transactions were securely recorded in real time. If you fix all the reasons why a consumer would take money out of the system, Musk told Isaacson, then it will be the place where all the money is, and that would make it a multi-trillion dollar company. Well, later at PayPal, Musk also sought to have the company renamed. Musk insisted that the company's name should be HTTP uh, colon double slash X dot com. With PayPal as merely one of the subsidiary brands, Isaacson said, he even tried to rebrand the payment system X slash PayPal. Well, he responded to Isaacson's long post by simply writing accurate. Well, the tech founder's obsession with rebranding and incorporating new financial tools was echoed by its newly appointed CEO. It's an exceptionally rare thing in life or in business that you get a second chance to make another big impression. Twitter made one massive impression and changed the way we communicate. Now X will go further, transforming the global town square. She went on to say X is the future state of unlimited interactivity centered in audio, video, messaging, payment, banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services and opportunities powered by AI. X will connect us all in ways we just are beginning to understand. I think I'll opt out. Well, YouTube has censored a story of a young woman who underwent an irreversible surgery as part of an attempted gender transition. Meanwhile, pro-transgender video of biological women who underwent double mastectomies remain on the platform uncensored. Prisha Mosley spoke to the Independent Women's Forum. Uh, Kelsey Bolar, also a contributor to the Daily Signal in December of last year about the traumatic events that led her to take testosterone injections and undergo a double mastectomy, then to ultimately detransition back to living as a woman. Well, since then, has uh, has filed a lawsuit accusing the doctors and medical professionals who transitioned her of medical malpractice and of using unfair and deceptive trade practices, causing her years of both psychological and physical pain. Her story has garnered almost 100,000 views on YouTube, but at some point since the video's December 22 publication, YouTube censored that video, making it viewable only on its platform. That affects whether readers can see the video if it has been included in a news story or on a news platform. It has simply disappeared. The video is age-restricted and only available on YouTube, reads a notice on the video. No images can be seen, and the background on the notice is black. Clicking on the the link allows viewers to access YouTube. But in the age of fast clicks and short attention spans, the censorship has uh, indubitably affected how many people are seeing Mosley's story. All right, we've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. When we return, a conversation with Judge um, uh, Amur Thapur, who is the author of The People's Justice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, for 30 years, Justice Clarence Thomas has been denounced as the cruelest justice, a betrayer of his race, an ideologue, and the enemy of the little guy. Well, the Honorable Amal Thapar demolishes that caricature of this compelling uh, jurist in a compelling study of the man and the jurist, the people's justice, Clarence Thomas, and the constitutional stories that define him. 
Every day, he points out in the book, Americans go to court invoking the Constitution. They fight for their homes, for better education, for safety in their homes and their cities, recounting the stories of a handful, 12 to be precise, of these ordinary Americans whose struggles for justice reach the Supreme Court. Uh, Thapur, he shines new light on the heart and the mind of Clarence Thomas in these cases. In fact, Justice Thomas has observed finding the right answer is often the least difficult problem. What's needed is the courage to assert that answer and stand firm in the face of the constant winds of protest and criticism. In this book, my guest seeks to help us understand a bit more about the heart of Clarence Thomas and not the caricature that's so often trotted out by media. Amal Thapar is a judge on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, the son of Indian immigrants. He grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and graduated from Boston College and the University of California at Berkeley Law School. Before becoming an appeals court judge, he served as a federal prosecutor and trial judge. He regularly teaches at Notre Dame and the University of Virginia and Vanderbilt. He and his wife have three children. They live in northern Kentucky, and today he joins us to talk about his compelling book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. Thank you so much for joining us, Judge. Well, thank you for having me. This is such an interesting book because it takes a, a different look at Clarence Thomas, a different facet of what we know about him, or at least think we know about him, to help reveal something of the heart of the man. What compelled you to take this approach to writing about Justice Thomas, who is so controversial in our country today? Yeah, I think that latter point is important, that he's perceived as being controversial when the reality of his jurisprudence is it should, he should be anything but controversial. And I think so often the stories underlying the cases aren't told. In other words, we get a two-minute sound bit, bite, I'm sorry, about what went on in a case, and we don't get explained to us And this isn't anyone's fault, right? Everyone's operating these days in 240 characters or two minutes. People don't sit down and talk about um, or tell people about what actually went on in the Mm -hmm. cases upon which the Supreme Court's ruling. Yeah, it is so interesting to try to distill a major case into a paragraph or two uh, from a media that isn't necessarily objective in the retelling of it. Uh, is in itself a, a misguided effort to understand what's going on. You write of Justice Thomas that he cares about people. One of his colleagues on the Supreme Court, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, recently described Justice Thomas this way. Justice Thomas is one of the justices in the building, uh, one justice that literally knows every employee's name, every one of them. He is a man who cares deeply about the court as an institution, about the people who work there, about people. Again, this might be surprising to some who only know uh, Justice uh, Thomas through uh, his um, the process in which he was seated on the court and everything that has followed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what's actually so true about Justice Thomas is everyone that meets him, even his critics, love him or at least like him as a person. And what they don't understand or take the time to understand is that love for people that he has, all people. The book recounts a story about a homeless person he's friends with. He meets people every year in the RV parks and is friends with them. And that love for people translates into his jurisprudence. In fact, I would say it's in some ways why he's an originalist, 
Because being an originalist means trusting and honoring the will of the American people. The the fact that they are self-governing, he honors that fact in interpreting as a uh, originalist what the, the words of the Constitution actually say and what the case actually means. Right. And that's the purpose of the book, as I say, to tell you what people don't, to give a face and a voice to those who have been changed. Their lives have been changed forever by the cases that come in front of the court and to show how Justice Thomas champions both our Constitution, as you just pointed out, and the people it protects who are often the little guys. So they say he's in favor of corporations and consumers. The book and the stories in the book prove the opposite is true. They say he's in favor of the government over the individual. Again, the book shows the opposite's true. And it's not me telling you, like, the 12 chapters are not me, the author, telling people what to think, as the critics often do. Rather, it's show, laying out the stories, laying out Justice Thomas's own words, and letting people decide for themselves. Interestingly, um, Justice Thomas is, has um, been given the, the distinction of being the cruelest of the Supreme Court justices. Uh, and again, this book in in highlighting 12 of his cases reveals a different facet of of his character. Why do you think it's important for the American people uh, to to know who Justice Thomas is more accurately than uh, we're being fed on a somewhat regular basis by hostels? Because I think originalism is a philosophy if properly explained. And it's not, you know, the media's fault. I don't think I think it's our fault meaning mine and Justice Scalia said we have a responsibility to fly the flag. Well, sadly, since he's passed, we haven't done a good job of explaining originalism or taking it to the American people and showing how originalism as properly understood benefits the American people. And I think it's once they see this, and that's why I think the publisher said even the critics might be surprised in the sleeve if Someone will read this book and then have a critic read it as well and have a discussion with them. I think it's going to change minds and hearts about what Justice Thomas is all about. How much of the criticism that we hear about him is more politically motivated because uh, Justice Thomas really doesn't fit the profile of an African-American, you know, his own history aside, Uh, And the views that he is entitled to hold, I, I too, am a conservative African-American, and I find uh, that there is a lot of opposition to the notion that you would uh, wander away from a certain set of ideas that are assigned to us. How much of his criticism is based on what he is and the fact that he really does not have the freedom, in the view of some, to hold views outside of what's been prescribed? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's in the motives of the critics, but I think the point you just made, I emphasize in the book because he himself, and I'm going to read this quote from the book, talks about how his grandfather taught him to assert my right to think for myself, to refuse to have my ideas assigned to me as though I was an intellectual slave because I am black, to state that I'm a man free to think for myself and do as I please and to assert that I am a judge and I will not be consigned to the unquestioned opinions of others. Here's the thing that's that's so appalling about how his race gets tied up in this and they say he's a traitor to his race is if you when you read his own words in the book and you see who the plaintiffs are and you see who he's in favor of ruling for and you see what he's 
talking about. You will see he has a very strong black voice. It's just mm-hmm. not the black voice his critics want him to have. It's more of a black nationalist um we, we will be victors, not victims. We will overcome barriers. It's much more like the Martin Luther King of old, the Malcolm X of old. And the people he champions are people like Frederick Douglass and Thomas Sowell, that you see him cite to Frederick Douglass throughout his opinions. So I think it's appalling that people don't tell the other side how he's a champion for 30-some years on the bench of historically black colleges. Yet how often is that talked about? Not very often. Not very often at all. Well, we're talking about the book, um, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about some of those constitutional uh, cases that define him, select some of the stories about Justice Thomas from the book. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Amal Thapar. He is the author of The People's Justice. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with the author of The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. Amal Plapar is himself a judge, uh, found um, Justice Thomas inspiring, and has written a book that focuses on 12 of the cases that reveal something of his uh, his character uh, and the, the heart of the man, if you will. Now, you um, have 12 selected cases in the book. Can you select the stories, uh, a few of them, about Justice Thomas um, that are your particular favorites or might surprise our listeners today about who Clarence Thomas is? Yeah, so I, you know, they're just a, they're like your children, right? There's no <laughs> one favorite after you've worked on them. You love them all. But I will start with the first chapter because I included it uh, for a reason as the first chapter. I think it's important because it shows so many facets of Justice Thomas's jurisprudence and his caring for people. And so in the first chapter, and I'm going to, can I, Jordan, can I, may I give the factual backdrop? Please do. I think that's so important. Suzette Kilo is a woman who's a little down on her luck. She's been separated from her husband. She's looking for a house to live. And she wants a house with a view of the water. But as a paramedic, she doesn't have a lot of money to spend. And so she buys in a blue-collar neighborhood this house with a view of the water that is run down. It's so run down, the real estate agent was embarrassed to sell it to her. But what is she going to do? She's going to get go take correspondent courses to become a nurse. She's going to get a second job as a nurse. She's going to put blood, sweat, and tears into this house. And she makes it a beautiful house. So beautiful that she wants to paint it her favorite color. It's called Odessa pink. And she does show. And she's in a neighborhood with neighbors like the Dairies who've lived there. Their family's been there 100 years. They love this blue collar neighborhood so much that when their kids get married, they put a down payment on a house for them in the neighborhood. And so this neighborhood has been around. It's in New London, Connecticut. Well, while Suzette is finding a piece of heaven, as she calls it, in her neighborhood, uh, the Pfizer Corporation, who your listeners may have heard of, is partnering with the city of New London, Connecticut, to come into New London. And they're going to go on an old mill site to put a plant and office building for their new wonder drug. They believe it's the wonder drug that's going to change the future called Viagra. And so they get this mill site, but they say the only way we'll come in and do this at, in New London, Connecticut 
is if we get more property and take it away through a process called eminent domain, which allows the government, according to the Fifth Amendment, to take your property for a public use. As Justice Thomas would later explain, that means taking a sliver of your land for a sidewalk or a sliver of your land to widen the road so that the public may use it. But what they want to do is take Suzette Kilo's neighborhood and turn it into an upscale mall, a health club, restaurants and upscale restaurants and shopping so they can have this beautiful shopping mall and condominium building and displace the residents. And they're going to use eminent domain to do it. Well, Suzette Kilo and her neighbors say no. We are not moving. We love our neighborhood. Our families have been here. Suzette had just turned her house into heaven on earth for her, and she had done so through hard work and and everything else, living kind of her slice of America. This was it, and they wanted to take it from her. Well, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and sadly at the court, the court ruled for Pfizer Corporation and the government. But let me just take a step back. Justice Thomas writes a very powerful dissent. And I encourage people to read the chapter. You'll see the details of the fight all the way to the court, and you'll see what happens. And there's a Twitter page for the book. It's the People's Justice. If they put it in, this question was asked at argument by Justice Scalia of the city's lawyer. So if it serves the public purpose, and I'm going to come back to those words, if it serves the public purpose to take from the poor and give to the rich because the rich pays higher taxes, you can do that. And the city said yes. And Justice Scalia said, wait, what are you talking about? You can hear the puzzlement in his voice. You can take from A and give to B just because B pays more taxes. Again, the city says yes. And this shocks him. And rightfully so. Well, where does this public purpose come from? Because I told you the words of the Constitution say public use, which means things like sidewalks Mm -hmm. and widening the road. Well, it comes from a case out of D.C. known as Berman where the Supreme Court allowed the city of D.C. to take what they called blighted property for apartment buildings and other things because it served the public purpose. So they changed the words of the Constitution to allow this to happen. As Justice Thomas points out, this practice that had been used for a long time displaced most often poor and minorities. In fact, the D.C. case displaced 97 percent of the people who were displaced were black. And then he points out how awful this practice is and was derogatorily called, and I'm sorry to use these words, but I'm quoting, Negro removal. In other words, who's championing the poor, the blacks, the minorities in this case? Justice Thomas, whose invitation did he take to do that? Who asked him to return to the original meaning? Because he's the all four justices vote in favor of Suzette Kilo. She loses five to four. But only Justice Thomas returns to the original meaning. And what no one will tell you in the chapter points out, one part, one amicus brief asked for the original meaning to be returned to the NAACP because they pointed out how often this is used to prey on blacks and minorities historically. And yet when you go Google Justice Thomas and Kilo, you're going to see nothing about that unless you read the opinion or you read the people's justice and see the facts, which are, as I included endnotes, because people aren't going to believe it. They're going to have to go check. In fact, they won't believe the city said you can take from the poor and give to the rich. That's why it's on the Twitter page. So, again, this would be surprising to um, some of our listeners who don't follow as closely 
the uh, the career of Justice Thomas. And it certainly is not championed by um, those who make the headlines on certain pieces of, of or decision making on the part of the court. Uh, but this this is typical of Justice Thomas. And again, in the 12 cases that you highlight, you point out what you wouldn't know unless you dug a bit deeper into his his career and the impact he's had on the court as an originalist. Yeah, that's exactly right. And his words are included in there. And I think people are going to find his words pretty compelling. And they're going to go look for where these words are reported. They're going to see neither the facts of this case nor the words are reported and the, once they see him firsthand, I think it's really going to change a lot of minds about does he have a black voice? Does he have the little guy who ruled in favor of the corporation and who ruled in favor of the American people on this one? That's what I'd ask. I'm going to take a break in just a couple of minutes, but I do want to invite you to, to comment on why this is important that we understand who Justice Thomas is and his philosophy on the bench, because we're hearing all kinds of proposals um, stacking the, the court, uh, minimizing the inf- impact that this uh, third branch of the government has and all kinds of suggestions that we ought to be frightened by this um, this different kind of court, as the, the president would put it. This isn't a normal court. And it's based on the impression that many Americans have about justices like uh, Clarence Thomas that need to be stopped. Your thoughts on why it's important for us to not only understand the decisions that Clarence Thomas has made to understand the man, but also the future of the court itself. I think if people read the people's justice and see how Justice Thomas is, what his America looks like, they're going to be surprised at how often they agree with him. And so you can uh, it's kind of like that saying, I'm going to butcher it. You can believe them or you can believe your eyes and your eyes and what you read are going to tell you a completely different story. And yes, the cases, the, the holdings of the cases are the holdings of the cases, what they will report in the media. But what's really going on in these cases? What's lost and not told to the American people about these cases, about how often originalism, Justice Thomas's brand of originalism, he's the ultimate originalist, even his critics don't deny that. Um, how often that favors the American people, how often it protects the little guy, how often it protects everyday parents like the Cleveland parents who just wanted to get a good education for their children. The picture is the backdrop of the Twitter page, the Cleveland parents who just wanted to get their kids out of failing schools. Who championed that? Clarence Thomas. And so I think when everyday Americans see this and they read through it, and this book isn't written for lawyers, even though they'll enjoy it too. It's written for everyday Americans that are busy. They can pick it up, read a couple stories a day, and they'll get a feel for what originalism has to offer. And I think they're going to walk away with a different view than they came to the book with. And perhaps a higher regard for uh, the Supreme Court in general. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, if you could just maybe focus on one other case that uh, features a decision or writing on the part of uh, Justice Thomas. Again, we're talking about a fascinating book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him, uh, which focuses on uh, cases that he has contributed to giving us a perspective on how he thinks and what um, how he arrives at the conclusions that he has come to. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. <laughs> 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with um, Amal Thapar, who is the author of The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. A fascinating look at uh, Clarence Thomas, not necessarily uh, the man and his um, his personal history, but his judicial philosophy as it's played out in 12 cases that are featured in this uh, fascinating book. Now, just before the break, we we focused on one of those cases. Can you select another and give us a bit of perspective on the role that he played in clarifying what um, his judicial philosophy, which is um, uh, to be a, um, a originalist, uh, and the outcome of a case. Yeah. So one is the un- uh, so the next chapter I want to focus on is what happens when we get away from the original meaning. So mm-hmm. we saw firsthand in the first chapter, and we discussed it how when you get away from the words of the Constitution and start to change them. They have dire consequences or bad consequences for the American people. Another one is when we have what Justice Thomas believes is a non-originalist decision that is often championed in the press. He will often, although it's not reported, point out the unintended consequences of these decisions. And so Kathy McKee was this remarkable woman from Detroit. You know, she wasn't well off and she funded her own way as a young child to Los Angeles to pursue her dream of being a Hollywood star. And she became a Hollywood star. And after becoming a Hollywood star, she was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. And Kathy had done all kinds of things in the chapter, talks about her exploits. And so I'll let I'll leave it to your listeners to read about that. But what ultimately happens is she's friends with Bill Cosby. And I'm sure your listeners know what happened with Bill Cosby. And she goes to visit him. She's in Detroit touring back home with Sammy Davis Jr. And Sammy leaves to go back to California and she stays to visit with family. Well, Bill Cosby happens to be in town and he wants to do something with her and invites her. And she had been, had been friends with Bill Cosby and his wife had had dinner at their house. And so he asked her to bring dinner for him to his hotel room, which isn't uncommon. He's a hot, you know, he's a big mm-hmm. star and can't go out. So she takes him dinner. Well, she claims that when she arrived there, he raped her. Um, And when other women start reporting this, she, too, reports about the rape. Well, what did Cosby and his lawyers pursued what is called a scorched earth strategy in response to these women accusing him of rape is they went after the women. And she wanted to go to court and prove. I mean, they called her all sorts of names, and it's recounted in the chapter, including a liar. And she wanted to go to court and prove that Bill Cosby was lying about her. but. The court has a doctrine called New York Times v. Sullivan. And in that, the Supreme Court said that public figures can recover for defamation only if they show the defendant acted with actual malice. And I'm reading from the book. In other words, the plaintiff needed to show that the defendant actually knew for a fact that the statement was false or else recklessly disregard that it was probably false. And as Justice Thomas has said and others have said, that standard is almost impossible to meet. So her case got thrown out of court. Why? Because they said by accusing Bill Cosby of rape, she became what's called a limited public figure, which is part of that doctrine, and had to prove actual malice, which is what's in someone's mind is almost impossible Mm -hmm. to prove. And so her case was tossed out. Well, Justice Thomas writes a lengthy decision about he's the only one at the court. 
And he writes a lengthy decision about for himself about how this case was wrong and how it's not based on the original meaning of the Constitution. But to prove he's the people's justice, two years later, he will constantly now write about this doctrine and the unintended consequences. Two years later, in a different case, he never forgot about Kathy McKee. And he wrote again, and I'm going to quote him from a, Remember, this is a different opinion of his. In another solo opinion, he wrote that Sullivan had denied McKee the right to defend her reputation in court simply because she accused a powerful man of rape. I've talked to Kathy McKee to this day. She just wants to prove that she's telling the truth and Bill Cosby's lying. And because she was raped by a powerful man, she's thrown out of court. That is the unintended consequences in Justice Thomas's mind of getting away from the original meaning. Again, we learned something about his uh, attention to detail, his care for individuals in these cases, whether or not they move forward to a decision the Supreme Court is ultimately going to make. And he he remembers her. He writes about her by name and makes reference at, at some point in the future. Again, that tells us a little bit of uh, of who Clarence Thomas is and how he approaches his work from the bench and his regard for the people whose lives are being impacted by case that, cases that make their way through the courts. Yeah, and one case I talk about in the book is the 11th chapter, and I'll leave it for the readers to read. But one thing that was amazing to me when we were studying it is 20 years after the case, one of the lawyer's children bumped into Justice Thomas and introduced themselves, and he remembered the details of the case from 20 years earlier and the people involved. I mean, imagine that. This is a man that just doesn't forget about people and that remembers their travails and will not forget and will often reference back. In fact, the last week of the term, so this is many years later now, he again cited Kathy McKee's case. He never forgets. Mm. It's incredible. Most of us are familiar with Justice Thomas um, in the more celebrated or controversial cases, These are cases that may be lesser known, but do reveal something of his judicial philosophy and character. What are the primary lessons you hope that readers will take away from the people's justice and our effort to better understand not only Justice Thomas, but um, what uh, originalism uh, means and why it's important to the republic moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few lessons, if I may. One is that Justice Thomas's love for America. You'll see firsthand in the book, I I talk about it in the introduction, about his upbringing and how he truly grew up dirt poor. His mom had was making $10 a week, so little she had to give her kids, her two boys up to their grandfather to raise and how their grandfather raised him with an iron fist, but he also believed firmly in America. When Justice Thomas or his brother would complain, his grandfather would say, old man can't is dead. You know how I know I helped bury him whenever they said they couldn't do anything. He grew up in segregated America. The second thing I hope they'll learn is in Justice Thomas's mind. And I think chapters two and three are important, especially today. When you talk about affirmative action, chapter three is affirmative action. Chapter two is vouchers. He thinks that uh, affirmative action is an unconstitutional Band-Aid on a much bigger problem plaguing mm-hmm. America, which is the failing K-12 through education, especially for the poor and minority kids, and how important it is to give those kids 
chances to succeed. And then the third thing is that he thinks all Americans will, if you set the bar high, they will accomplish it. That's based on his own upbringing, that setting a high bar for your kids, they'll accomplish it. If government sets it lower based on your race, in his mind, as he talks about in chapter three, that's racism. And so we shouldn't be doing that. And the final thing I hope they'll walk away with when they read this book is what they read about, no matter who it is, his proponents or his antagonists, they're not telling the full story. And if people know the full story, they're going to have a completely different picture of this man. And hopefully he will rightfully be thought of as a much different justice, as the leading originalist, as a brilliant man who cares passionately about people. And if they get the chance to meet him, they'll see that firsthand. Mm. Well, I thank you so much for this uh, for this book, The People's Justice. I think people will find it fascinating because it takes a different approach to helping us understand uh, Clarence Thomas. And thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Again, Amal Thapar is the author of The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as expected, the summer in which churches throughout the region who had been banding together to show the Portland metro area the overwhelming love of Jesus culminated on Sunday with a gathering of worship. It was a great occasion. Um, the church was united together to serve those in need while praying for the city and worshiping together, worshiping our great God. Over 130 churches came together to say yes, to serve and pray for the metro area in strategic ways. And by the way, the fact that summer is going to draw to a close does not mean that these efforts will draw to a close. You can go to togetherpdx.org and find more information about how the church is continuing in unity uh, to minister in our community. The efforts, as I mentioned, culminated in a worship gathering on the Portland waterfront last uh, last night. I guess this is Monday, so yesterday. Um And it was a wonderful occasion. Over 1,200 people gathered in unity to worship and praise God for all he's done and continues to do in our region. There were lawn games, local food trucks, worship by local worship leaders with um, guest Matt Redman, who also performed. You had the opportunity to hear from Wendy Palau. She spoke with a young woman about her testimony, which was uh, dramatic and encouraging. It was a story of faith and deliverance. Then Andrew Palau shared the hope of Jesus and invited people into a new life in Christ. The church in Portland has been inspired, uplifted by this season, and it'll be interesting to hear the fruit that was born through these um, these weeks and months in which God's people come have come together for the sole purpose of ministering to, extending the love of Christ into our community and then uh, lifting up the name of Jesus. So a wonderful, uh, wonderful summer season. And again, I would encourage you to check out TogetherPDX.org for information about how the church is continuing to minister in our community in a variety of ways. Well, as the value Americans place on religion has declined, and I hate to use the word religion, I know you can correct it by suggesting that we're talking about relationship in the context of the Christian faith, but the survey um, focused on religion, so gathering together with fellow believers. 
Anyway, as the value Americans place on religion has declined over the last two decades, an increasing share of society now ranks community activities, hobbies and recreational activities, money, friends and health as extremely or very important priorities in their lives, while family maintained its rank as the highest priority of all. This is the result of a new Gallup survey. These have limited use, but they do give us a glimpse into a moment in time, telling us something about our neighbors and what we value. Well, the results of the survey was conducted back in June with a random sample of about 1,100 adults living in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And the outcome, again, a small sampling, uh, showed that 96% of Americans ranked their family as extremely or very important. I hope that is true. Uh, the same share of Americans ranked their family as extremely or very important using data from a survey conducted between 2001 and 2002. So this remains a high priority. It certainly does on the survey whether or not that's lived out in real time. Well, only they would know. And while religion fell by 7% from 65% to 58% over the comparison period, all other priority areas measured showed increases. More than half of Americans now say community activities and hobbies or recreational activities, activities rather, are now extremely or very important to them. Now, this may be the result of the post-pandemic isolation that we lived through in which we perhaps value community and fellowship more than we did before. But this is what the survey uh, determined. More than half of Americans now say community activities and hobbies, recreational activities are now extremely or very important. Uh, but more than 20 years ago, this was not the case. Well, the data show that only 32 percent of Americans said community activities were extremely or very important at the end of the survey period in 2002. But if you fast forward to 2023, that share jumps to 55 percent reflecting a 23% increase in how Americans value community activities. Well, this was the largest increase in any priority highlighted in the survey. Uh, They increased as a priority by 13% over the period from 48% to 61%. Money increased from 67% to 79%. Work from 74% to 83%. And the priority placed on friends increased from 74% to 78%, while the focus on health increased from 90% to 92%. Somewhere along the way, Americans' personal priorities have shifted in notable ways. They now value parts of their lives more than they did in the uh, earlier surveys, particularly their community activities, but also their hobbies and recreational pursuits. In Meaning in Modern America, it's a 2018 study released by the Institute for Family Studies, a psychology professor, Clay Rutledge, he highlighted how most Americans, including those who believe in God, say that their main source of meaning in life comes from their relationships with others, such as family and friends, instead of religion. American culture is changing in a number of ways that have potentially powerful implications for people's efforts to find and maintain meaning in life. Americans are waiting longer to get married and have children, are having fewer of them. Feelings of social disconnection and loneliness are on the rise, even as people are increasingly connected via social media. If you can say people actually connect on social media. Well, should religion, including Christianity, decline to a point where the American population has no religion at all, societal welfare could suffer as well. A 2022 survey analysis, rather, by the Pew Research Center has concluded. 
Rather, uh, rather interesting. Well, a stage adaptation of The Hiding Place, which tells the remarkable story to a new generation of Corey Ten Boom and her courageous family during the horrors of World War II, will hit the big screen, reaching a nationwide audience with a message of hospitality, forgiveness and unwavering faithfulness. Now, I love the uh, movie made decades ago called The Hiding Place. I still think it's well done. It's still relevant. But this is a stage play making it to the big screen. The play was adapted from Ten Boom's memoir, for the uh, stage by A.S. Peterson, directed by Matt Logan. It was filmed live for cinema audiences at the uh, Soli Deo Center in Nashville, Tennessee, during a four-week run to sold-out audiences back in 22. And next month, it will hit theaters for three nights only. The Hiding Place follows Corey Ten Boom and her family, including her father, Casper, and her sister, Betsy, as they quietly resist the evils carried out by the Third Reich in the 1940s, Harlem Holland fueled by their love of God and their neighbor. In an interview with Christian Post, uh, Peterson said The Hiding Place is more than an historical tale about set against the backdrop of World War II. It's a timely story that speaks to the human heart, encouraging viewers to confront their own choices, beliefs, and capacity for love and forgiveness. And one of the things that I think is so remarkable, he went on to say, about the Ten Booms is they were committed to fighting the war with hospitality. They were committed to kindness, to loving their neighbors at the risk of their own safety. They were willing to love people that believed other than they did, which is a really remarkable thing. The world needs more of that. Again, it's going to hit the big screen at some point uh, for three nights only. We'll try to keep an eye on that and let you know when it comes to our area. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.